It's good. Well, again, good morning. It's good to be together, even on a day as, as blustery and rainy as this, and grateful that we can be together, and we can worship together, and we can give attention to the Word of God for the next number of minutes. So um, you probably already know, but last Sunday we kicked off a new study of the wilderness wanderings. This will take us through the end of May. And these stories, drawn from the biblical books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're going to immerse us in the lives of the people of God in their journey of almost 40 years from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And so last week, Mike got us started, walked us through the people of Israel's formative story, that of God's great deliverance of the people out of Egypt and through the waters of the Red Sea. This morning, we're going to jump back into the story of the people of God in the wilderness. We'll pick up the story in Exodus 16, as you can see on the screen. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. But as you make your way to Exodus 16, I want to address a potential misunderstanding that has come to our attention. So this past week in our staff meeting, a couple of our coworkers mentioned to Mike and me that they had already heard some confusion around the term Israel especially given what Nashat just shared about the current war taking place in Israel and Gaza. And, and our co-workers, who we love and trust, thought it might be worth some clarifying comments on Israel, Palestine, how the identity of the Old Testament people of God relates to current events. And so when I heard that, I thought, is it too late to change the preaching schedule? Um, but it's not. And it, well, no, it is. I don't, I don't know what I meant to say. Here's what you need to know. This is a huge and important topic, and to address it really thoroughly would actually require a total pivot from Exodus 16 and the text we're actually going to look at. So for now, let me just give you a brief overview that I I hope will be helpful in shaping our thinking for the months ahead. The Bible tells us that while God created all people in his image out of the overflow of his love, he also chose a particular family through a man named Abraham to be the conduit for his plan of redemption. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, whose name would later be changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons who became, became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. It is their story we're going to pay close attention to over the coming months. Now, this people was called to show their connection to their ancestor Abraham by living with the same kind of faith that marked his life. This chosen people was uniquely called to display God's love and his character to the world as they lived in faithfulness to him. And then he showed them the blessings promised for such faithfulness, which would serve as a compelling witness to all the nations that there is truly just one true and living God worthy of all worship. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you already know that this was a calling that the people of God had trouble living up to and into. And so eventually the prophets began speaking in startling language that distinguished between the people of the bloodline of Abraham and the people of the faith of Abraham, those who exhibited the faithfulness of Abraham. And that distinction holds through the New Testament as well. Much of the language of the scriptures calls the people of the bloodline to live as the people of faith that they were called to be and offers striking warnings for those that refuse to do so. This matters today because the modern political state of Israel bears the same name as the ancient people chosen by God to be in special covenant relationship with him. Yet the name of the state of Israel comes by virtue of bloodlines to Abraham, not by virtue of the faith 
of Abraham, which is a key dividing line in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which means that the modern political state of Israel, which was formed in 1948, should not be made equivalent with the Israel of faith spoken of in the scriptures. And while there are, to the praise of God, those of the faith of Abraham among the descendants of Abraham, we shouldn't make the mistake of confusing a biological identity with a spiritual identity, nor the priorities and prerogatives of a political state with the priorities and prerogatives of the God who calls all people to live for his kingdom. All right, there's certainly more that can and will be said on that topic, but I hope that's a hopeful, helpful overview because we're hoping to read the scriptures and the news with both our minds and our hearts engaged and informed by what we know to be true from the Bible. Speaking of the Bible, is your Bible open to Exodus 16? If so, and if you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? We're going to take a look at one of the stories of the Old Testament people of God. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded, tomorrow... 
is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may return to your seats. Well, there's obviously so much in that text we could focus on, but for the next number of minutes, I want to help us actually just give attention to two key words in the passage, two terms that you likely noticed came up repeatedly. The first is most obviously grumble. This translates two different but related Hebrew terms in the text, grumble, grumbling, grumbled, comes up eight times in the verses that we just read together. So a mere month after seeing God's dramatic movement on their behalf, the people find themselves facing deprivation, and they're convinced that the God who had just rescued them now intends to destroy them in the desert. So you may remember, we we read of them back in chapter 14, and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. A month later, it seems their hearts have moved as much as their feet. And so as we look at the highs and lows of our spiritual ancestors in the coming months, there are two pitfalls I want to help us avoid. And the first pitfall is this, the pitfall of superiority. To use these stories to feed an unhealthy sense of superiority in ourselves. I think it's easy to read these stories as fuel to shake our heads in disgust. Right? These idiots, they just saw the power of God on display, and now they're just worried about their dinner? I think that approach fails to humbly recognize the ways in which we are prone to the same attitudes. But the second pitfall that I want to help us avoid is the pitfall of camaraderie. To use these stories to feed an unhealthy sense of camaraderie and identification. It can also be easy to read these stories as a mirror to our own experience and fixate on the similarities we find between ourselves and our spiritual ancestors. And such an approach can lead to a sense of fatalism about humanity that fails to take seriously each individual's call to respond faithfully to God. And yes, I know that those sound like opposite pitfalls. I'm well aware. So let's talk about a different pitfall. Anyone remember this video game? We're my Gen Xers, yeah? For the Atari video game system. You will play this game as a character called Pitfall Harry. He was an explorer. He was a treasure hunter. And as you navigated through this game, you would navigate Pitfall Harry through all kinds of dangers in the jungle like that. He would have to swing on ropes to safely avoid dangers like quicksand and crocodiles and that rattlesnake on the left. Now, there aren't very many Atari-based sermon analogies that I can think of. But here's how this connects for me. The best way 
to avoid the pitfalls of superiority or camaraderie. And reading these stories is to grab onto something more solid than the example of the people of Israel. Which brings me to the second keyword from our text. If the first keyword was grumble, the second is no. Three times in this passage, God says that his movement towards the people will be so that you will know that it was the Lord. For the people in distress then and for us today, this, this is firm enough to hold on to. If you've been around here for very long, you've likely heard us say before that the Bible is first and foremost a book about God. Before it does anything else related to showing people how to live, it actually reveals who God is and what he has done. Which means that our first question when we come to any text should always be, what do I see or learn about God here? Eventually we can and we must get to questions of responding to what we know to be true of God. But if we get those questions out of order, we can quickly begin to imagine God in our own image. And we can quickly begin to suit him to our preferences rather than properly conforming our lives to what we find is true about God. So for the rest of our time together, I want to apply that question to this story of God's interaction with his grumbling people. I won't even try to be exhaustive here. I just want to talk about two key characteristics of God highlighted by our text. And the first is this. It's pretty clear that the God of the wilderness is a God of great patience. Great patience. When the book of Exodus opens, the people of God are oppressed. They are suffering in Egypt. And so we read this in chapter 2. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so he demonstrated that concern by liberating his people, leading them through the Red Sea on dry land, And now that they are safely on the other side of both fetters and Pharaoh, we see them complaining about the very deliverance they longed for. Would you look again at verse 3? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Later in the text, we will see that they openly flaunt God's instructions given through Moses. Look at verse 19. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. That's a fun little fact in the story. After receiving instructions to gather twice as much on the sixth day so that they could rest on the seventh day, we read this in verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it but they found none. So how does God respond to his less than grateful and less than compliant people? Probably not as strongly as we would have expected given the power he just showed in Egypt. Instead, his response reads more like frustration than condemnation. Look at verse 28. How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? In our home group discussion this week, multiple parents said they found that verse very easy to identify with. Like, how? How long? That moment of frustration that comes from deep longing to see the people you love truly flourishing. The picture of God that emerges from these stories is exceedingly patient. But the second key characteristic that jumps out here is that the God of the wilderness is a God of gracious provision. Would you look again at verse 12? 
I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. You may recall from chapter 12 that after the plague on the firstborn, the Israelites left Egypt with flocks and livestock and with dough without yeast in it. But now about a month out, they have probably run low on those resources as they try to take care of and feed this multitude of almost a million people. And as he will, time and again in these stories, God steps in and he provides. Meat in the evening, bread in the morning, in the next chapter, water in the dry place. And on top of that, the meal he provided even tasted good. It's like wafers made with honey. This is perhaps the most obvious feature, but meals are only the beginning of provision. Do you look at verse 29? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Can you imagine for just a moment how foreign this concept must have seemed to the Israelites? Fresh off of four centuries of slavery, working in a system with very limited PTO, no dependent care benefits. And here, God invites his people to experience a radically different way of life, one rooted in his gracious character, in which his provision is cause for rest never before felt. It is not uncommon, sadly, to hear Christians talk as though the God of the Old Testament is somehow marked by petty anger, wrath, and vindictiveness, and our text today loudly declares otherwise. Through both sustenance and Sabbath, God shows gracious provision for his people even when they are not their most faithful. So it's often at this point in a sermon that the preacher will try to do some intentional connecting to the way and the words of Jesus, attempting to weave various strands together into a tapestry that looks like Christ. To do that today, I want to read directly the words of the best preacher I've ever encountered. So would you turn to John 6? fresh off feeding the 5,000 with a mere five loaves and two fishes, and then walking across the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, a miracle-hungry crowd finds Jesus. So let's pick up the story in verse 30, John chapter 6. So they asked him, What sign will you give so we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, You have seen me, and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble. Sounds familiar. 
They began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God, and only he has seen the father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's so much better than any Atari analogy. It is no accident that Jesus' words are saturated with the imagery and the vocabulary of Exodus 16. This rabbi who is steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and fluent in the story of the Israelites, he was also deeply aware of his own identity And he would not miss the chance to bring it all together for the people. So faced with yet another group of grumblers, Jesus declares that his very life is how the people can know the Father. Jesus, the one sent from heaven, is God's most gracious provision. Jesus is the bread of life, the meal that satisfies true hunger. Jesus taught that God's character is most clearly seen in the giving of the Son, in the most profound gesture of great patience and gracious provision for sinful people, the Father provided Jesus as a sacrifice to reconcile what had been broken. The Apostle John says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How we believe God to be matters deeply to how we imagine life as his children. And we've been reminded today that the true and living God is marked by great patience and gracious provision. And we're finally ready to ask ourselves, if this is the God we belong to, how do we then live? And to be honest, this was the hardest part of this sermon to figure out. There's any number of ways to respond to God's great patience, his gracious provision, his pursuing love. And as I stumbled through all kinds of options that felt decent but not full, I felt pretty strongly that the Spirit has his own work to do in each of us here. And so I want to give us just a time of silence to ask God, how should I respond? If this is true and this is who you are, that you are a God of great patience and gracious provision and you showed your love by sending the Son... How do I respond? Let's ask God. Let's spend some time in silence before we come to the table in just a moment.
week by week, those who are a part of the family of God by faith in Christ come to this meal to symbolically put Jesus' words into practice. We take bread to remember his broken body given for our forgiveness. And we dip it in wine and we remember his blood shed for our forgiveness. We come as a people aware of our tendencies toward unfaithfulness, but even more aware that we belong to a God of great patience and gracious provision. We confess our shortcomings and we celebrate God's faithfulness. And just as bread nourishes our physical bodies, we ask the bread of life to nourish our spirits so that we might live more faithfully and gratefully in response to his great love. If you are not sure what it means to belong to the family of God by faith in Christ, I want to urge you to talk with someone today before you leave. Find out what that means. It could be anyone you've seen on stage. It can be prayer teams. It could be the person sitting next to you. But fam, this is how the God of great patience and great provision showed his love among us. He sent his son as a sacrifice to atone for our sins so that we could live, we could live in light of the love of a God like that. So let's come to the table as we continue in our worship.